Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow. Thank you for downloading this podcast episode. My name is Rob Snow White, and yes, that is real last name. This episode is all about brook trout myths and urban legends with Dr. James Seleski. He's not a fish doctor, he's a human doctor. That may confuse you with all the amount of information he's going to present in the next hour. This episode is brought to you by Tan Through Swimwear and Shirts by Cool Tan. Look great and get a tan right through your swimsuit or shirt. Jim is a brook trout addict and volunteer. He did the hard work and research so you don't have to. Before we start, I want you to write down on a little piece of paper what do you think is the largest thing Jim has ever hooked while night fishing in Pennsylvania? You got it? Good. We're going to go through several of his brook trout myths and urban legends. The first one is that big downstream waterways that heat up in the summer aren't important for brook trout. Myth two, that brook trout cannot survive in streams that have deforested banks. Myth three, you can't have brook trout with agriculture. And finally, myth four, which is the reason everyone says there are no longer brook trout here in Northern Virginia, specifically in Difficult Run, is that a stream is just too warm for brook trout or the water quality is just not good enough for brook trout. As I mentioned, this episode is brought to you by Cool Tan. Get your tan on without looking like you're wearing a white t-shirt and undies when you get in the shower after the pool or the beach. Now you can get a tan through the most comfortable, best-looking swimsuits and shirts in the world. Whether you're at the beach, boating, on vacation, or just relaxing in the yard, now you can get a natural suntan right through the fabric. The Cool Tan line of swimsuits and shirts not only let you sun right through the fabric, they're also lightweight, comfortable, and they dry extremely quickly. I've got the board shorts, which basically feel like basketball shorts, and I've got a polo. 
We need to get producer Jason a V-neck. I don't know if you've noticed, but every time the dude posts a picture, he's got a V-neck t-shirt on. He's a V-neck guy. And Cool Tan makes V-necks that you can tan through. Yes, you still need to wear sunscreen on your bare skin underneath these. Dudes, that means you can burn your squirmy wormies and glow bugs. Ladies, you got to watch out for that merkin. I can't believe I just said that. These items are made from unique, high-quality fabric that allow you to get a natural suntan right through the fabric about as fast as you would with a medium-level SPF sunscreen. The unique fabric that makes it all possible is Microsol V, the lightweight fabric that lets sunlight through like a medium-level sunscreen, eliminating the need for messy oils and lotions. Visit tanthrough.com for more info or find them on Amazon. And no, people cannot see your bare parts through these. It is a fine mesh that allows sunscreen through, but not your eyes. Thanks for downloading this episode. Now let's go find Jim, a very tired dad, on a late Sunday afternoon. Well, you do have your brook trout shirt on. I do. I do. I, I, as my wife will tease me, I own many brook trout articles of clothing. I used yeah. to have some nice Patagonia native fish t-shirts. I don't know what happened to them. I got, uh, what do I have? I think I have like, I just stuff I picked over the, up the, over the years in fly shops. Like if it has a, if I'm on like vacation somewhere and I walk in a fly shop and it's got a brook trout skin on it, I usually buy it, but yeah, just, uh, accumulation. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, let's get started. Yeah. James Seleski. I'm a board member of PA Native Fish Coalition. I'm uh, 35 years old. Um, my day job, I'm a physician. And I, you know, got into native brook trout, uh, you know, kind of through fly fishing, you know, first fishing as a kid, then, you know, fly fishing. And then, you know, when, when you're fly fishing, you, you know, you kind of you get a lot of your information from tackle shops, fly shops, um, you know, people who are, you know, established fly fishermen or doing it professionally. And you just, you start to, you know, have questions. And those are the kind of people that are available to answer those questions. Probably about, I want to say like four or five years ago, I, I just became like all of a sudden aware of kind of separate from fishing, the, you know, people who professionally work in conservation. So this would be like PhDs in brook trout ecology. This would be, you know, people who are working uh, NGOs related to brook trout conservation, uh, you know, academics, uh, you know, at, at universities who are designing, you know, studies and research projects for brook trout to federal science organizations like the USGS. And I just realized that there was all this data out there and all this, you know, research that was basically done with the intention that it would inform how like state, you know, fish and boat or fish and game departments would actually manage. So I said, you know, to myself, I was like, if I want to learn how to present a dry fly to a rising fish, like I'm going to go down to the fly shop and ask them. But I said to myself, like, I want to know what these career, you know, brook trout researchers are doing. Cause like, that's what they do professionally. That's kind of like their wheel wheelhouse and their specialty. So, you know, I started reading a lot of this kind of peer reviewed literature. There was not some, some scientists out there who were nice enough to do some science communication where they not only do the research, find their findings, but engage the public a little bit. 
So there were some of them that had websites and blogs where I started to get some exposure to this stuff. And, you know, what I found was there was two very differing kind of outlooks on native brook trout. When I would go into a fly shop or Pennsylvania, talk to like any of my, you know, uh, kind of local, you know, kind of, uh, you know, notable fishermen who may or may not have been guides. You know, you hear things like the water's just not clean enough for them in all the cases. And, you know, it's just not cold enough for them in all the cases. And, you know, you'd hear things like, you know, you can't have brook trout with agriculture. And since we have so much agriculture here in PA, you can't have them. You know, other things that I heard is like, you know, they just can't get big. They're limited out at like, you know, those small sizes, like, you know, most for the majority less than five to six inches and, you know, small mountain headwater streams. And, you know, I'd heard things like, you know, that they only need those small mountain headwater streams. That's all they like to live in. And since it's so infertile up there, you know, that's how they like it. And they kind of, you know, that's where brook trout live. And I had accepted that for the longest time because that's really the only information that I got. But then when I made this transition from getting my information outside of the fishing community to more of like the conservation community, I really saw that they had a much more optimistic outlook about native brook trout conservation than I'll say we as anglers as a whole do sometimes. So I guess that, um, I, I guess that the following of like the, the, what I'll call like the brook trout myth busters Right, these, these are the urban legends that get passed around. I hear these exactly. at our beer tie. I'll hear these <laughs> just hanging out with these are the same stories that are perpetuated about brook trout. And did you get bit by a brook trout? Is that where this all came from? I did a, a, a radioactive one. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I've been watching Twilight a little bit. She got, I think, bit. I don't know. No spoilers. I haven't really gotten that far. But so you know, you, you may have just been bit by a brook trout and got like brook trout fever. I may have, you know, I will say, you know, I like to use urban legend because that's I just, I don't like that phrase. You know, there, there's some cool urban legends, you know, like everyone knows about like the, you know, like the 20 some odd inch brown trout that lives down by, you know, so-and-so that, you know, won't take a dry fly and, you know, someone gave it a name. Like those are cool. Those add to our sport. I like urban legends about fishing. You know, it's just when they get into the conservation, you know, people just like have a hard time separating those two things. But, you know, there are more anglers doing the conservation work versus old dudes that live in the basement of their university and are just tenured and they're just doing the research just to get it done. Yeah. So, you know, the there's there's varying there's like uh the kind of difference in my mind between like conservation and like fishing is if you take let, let's say like you take a, a like a like a stream project right there's volunteers who are doing that and they're volunteering in conservation but there's different levels to that uh, in my mind it's like if you're going to do a stream project, you're going to have stated goals and each stream project is going to have like different stated goals. So like here in Pennsylvania, you know, we have like the almighty TMDL, um, total maximum daily load of like nitrogen, you know, phosphorus and sediment to protect the Chesapeake Bay, which is a really important thing to improve. That's where a majority of your conservation efforts and, and funding for projects kind of go towards us because we're way behind on cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay here in Pennsylvania. A lot of stream projects 
you know, have those conservation goals, but it's a little more nuanced than that because there's also fishing goals that are, you know, tied into those conservation goals. A lot of times, like the habitat structures or pools will be kind of more kind, you know, they may eliminate that night, that nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment runoff. But a lot of times people want to pools to look a certain way to fish them. Sometimes it can be more of like a form versus like a function. Sometimes you have goals for, you know, species that the scientific community would say don't really have a, a true conservation need per se. And we can get into that. But it's, it's like you said, there are the academics who are kind of publishing the research on how the volunteers and fisheries managers should uh, approach conservation goals. And then there's, like you said, there's the people actually putting in the time to do the, the boots on the ground conservation work. So that's a good point. I'm glad you pointed that out. We can get into that a little bit more later. And some of the, the brook trout myths, I have some uh, examples of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's go through your myths. All right. So First one here, water is not clean or cold enough where there are no brook trout in all or most cases. Another one, well, actually, I'll just, you know what I'll do? I'll just go through uh, myth number one. I'll go in order here. The, the, one of the big kind of things that I heard myths uh, that has been propagated is that, you know, brook trout, these are just fish of headwater streams. They're just, you know, they're just up in those headwater streams. That's, that's all they need. So one of the, the kind of um, articles that really changed my understanding on that was in 2020, in the Journal of Ecological Applications, uh, Dr. Shannon White published her novel quantitative framework of riverscape genetics. That's a lot of, uh, you know, that's a mouthful there. But basically what it was, was she put transponder tags, radio telemetry tags in brook trout in the Loyal Sox system. And she looked at where they went uh, for half the year. And she also, after doing that, or around the same time as doing that, went to all these different tributaries that they possibly could have traveled to and took fin clips to look at the genetics of each tributary. What this base, and she also in the process developed like a novel model for assessing uh, riverscape genetics. Um, and uh, I won't get it, that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But anyway, the, the big point was what she found out with this study is like 18% of these brook trout in, in these small streams were moving and they were, some of them were moving quite far. Like one went like 7.2 miles for little um, fish. That's quite the journey. That is quite the journey. So exactly. The, the big thing that came out of this was that these big downstream waterways that we look at as like insignificant for brook trout, or we can just stock them or we can just, you know, it, it, you know, they're viewed as non-important for brook trout. But her study concluded that these these big waterways are actually critical corridors for brook trout to share their genetics with other populations within the watershed. I'll get to why that's important in a second, but they're basically like highways. A lot of people forget that brook trout can use those large waters you know, three seasons a year. A lot of people also forget that, you know, they're very food rich. Um, you know, Petty uh, et al. in 2014 showed that these large corridors and waterways are actually important foraging grounds for native brook trout. You know, like we talked about, these tiny tributaries, they're very infertile. They're, they're not food rich. You know, brook trout can go downstream and take advantage of that big food source uh, in the colder months. So 
you know, that's what the study showed essentially that they're moving a lot more than we thought that they were. And also essentially that our management needs to be at a watershed scale to preserve this important movement that, that creates genetic diversity. So essentially recommending that we manage brook trout at a watershed scale. So instead of like, you know, for example, in PA, we have class A brook no. trout sections. You might manage a, a quarter mile of a tiny headwater stream for class A brook trout, but it's anyone's guess what's happening in the rest of the entire watershed. You know, that was something that really, for me, kind of, I was like, whoa, you know, that's not how I understand how brook trout should be managed. It's definitely different from what I'm hearing from, you know, the PA Fish and Boat Commission. So that's one kind of myth is that they only need those tiny headwater streams. As we discussed there's food downstream. The movement is important. I wanted to touch on, like, why is it important that brook trout move? Like, what is the big deal? Like, why do they need to go and share their genetics with other tributaries within the watershed? Inbreeding is not good in any species. Saw the Florida panther when, you know, inbreeding occurs, its tail got crooked, it stopped reproducing well. Um, the same thing can happen in brook trout. If you have one tributary full of brook trout and they are all just interbreeding, you know, inbreeding with each other, that's a, you know, going to make uh, a lot of times smaller, less fit, less fertile individuals. So you're really putting the long-term survivability of the species in that you know, stream at risk uh, if you're allowing inbreeding to occur and you're not managing a watershed for movement. So that's the whole big deal with the movement. Is that that's kind of making sense? Absolutely. All right. So, and no one's know, ever seen a brook trout migrate. I'm guessing they do it at night. Well, no, actually, you know, it's so funny. If if people like go fishing in these, uh, like this happens to me all the all the time. It happens to other people all the time. If you fish from like December, you know, after the spawn to like May, you, people catch native brook trout in these larger waterways all the time. And actually, there's a huge debate going on in Pennsylvania about why there's not catch and release in these larger waterways, because essentially, you know, these areas that we think of as like big, big water, too warm stock trout fishery, when they're dumping all those fish in, that's a lot of times in those colder months when the native brook trout are actually using them to, you know, replace the caloric deficit from spawning, you know, take advantage of the more rich food source, you know, possibly migrating into different tributaries to increase genetic diversity. So, you know, all these things that are important for growth and for, you know, survival and adaptation for native brook trout are occurring through this big corridor and we're catching them here in PA in those big corridors in the colder months. And a lot of times, you know, they're going out on stringers because people, I mean, you know, twice a weekend, a year, fishermen just looking to keep something to the table. A lot of times they can't even tell like brook trout, rainbow trout, or, you know, so there's a lot of incidental harvest occurring in these areas. And I've actually talked to, you know, um, other states DNRs and they've said, yeah, like that's totally an issue. That's why a lot of other states besides Pennsylvania have catch and release regulations, but I'll, I'll get into that as well. The other thing is, is if you think about this movement that brook trout have, think about all the challenges they face. So climate change is one, man-made barriers, natural barriers, you know, from, from, you know, decreased flow to, to physical barriers to, you know, all kinds of threats and challenges. The, think of the genes that they have as like the genetic diversity, the range of genes they have is like more genetic diversity is like a larger genetic tool belt 
to deal with different stressors. So if you have a population and there's like, you know, there's more of a diversity of genes, these stressors will select, meaning brook trout will pass away. And, you know, brook trout with the more favorable genetics in a lot of cases will remain. If you have a larger pool of genes, you have more adaptation tools for these brook trout. So that's why, you know, going to different tributaries and movement and connectivity is so important because you want to maintain that big, rich, you know, genetic tool belt to, to maximize what's called adaptive potential. You want them to be able to adapt to the stressors in the environment they face. And this plays out over, you know, such a long time span that we're not talking about just a couple years or even, I mean, this plays out over, you know, an extremely long period of time. That's kind of why there's such a, an emphasis on the movement, I'll say. And otherwise, you know, in regards to this kind of this myth of that they only need small headwater streams, you know, I want people to understand like what some of the, when you say manage a watershed for brook trout, that's what they're recommending. What does that mean? Like what for the listeners, like what does managing an entire watershed for a brook trout like look like? Really, when, when that kind of recommendation comes out from the scientific community, my understanding from reading literature is, you know, you're trying to minimize barriers to connectivity sometimes. That gets very complicated if there are invasive species in the system. But let's just say, you know, to maximize gene flow, in many cases, you're trying to maximize connectivity. So like, what's a barrier? What's going to block a brook trout from, from moving in a watershed? If it goes out on a stringer, that's a barrier. That brook trout's not going to get to share its dream, you know, genes. It's not going to get to where it's going. If it gets eaten by an invasive species, that's a, you know, a biotic barrier. That's not, you know, it's not going to, that brook trout is not going to go share its genes. It's not going to be able to take advantage of the forage and grow and reproduce. It, it's gone. You know, dams and reservoirs and culverts are, I think, like the big ones that most of the anglers listening probably already have a pretty fair understanding of. I, I think that, you know, one that uh, was really uh, took me by surprise, I'll say, is I was watching a presentation, you know, given by a, um, a prominent brook trout researcher. He had a list of uh, barriers and on the, bar- on the list of barriers, he had a picture of a brown trout and a picture of a rainbow trout. And as a barrier to brook trout movement, he had a, a a bullet point there next to it that said invasive species. So actually the idea that a non-native species could function as a barrier to movement to me was a, a very new concept and very interesting because if you think about like going back to what does it mean to not to manage a waterway, a watershed for brook trout, if you have this big movement corridor and you're trying to facilitate movement to promote genetic diversity, dumping like uh, tens of thousands of stocked fish in that waterway, you know, here in Pennsylvania, I think some of our waterways between private clubs and, and uh, the state might even get like 60,000, you know, trout in a season. That was a new concept to me because, you know, if you're putting in those non-native fish that function as a barrier, it's almost like to, you know, it's almost like you're, you're stocking you know, we're paying $50,000 to remove a culvert and a perched culvert that's terrible in that watershed that's going to limit movement. But then the immense cost to stock those fish is almost like putting in a, a barrier. 
if you look at states like Maryland or like West Virginia, West Virginia actually just, you know, in a recent article cited that the Eastern Brook Trout Joint Venture, which is like a, a non-governmental organization kind of conglomerate of, of a group of, you know, brook trout experts who are, you know, um, compiling research and making management recommendations and going through the data. They're actually recommending, you know, to manage brook trout in waterways. And West Virginia DNR is actually now has these brook trout management waterways where they're doing catch and release for brook trout in the entire waterway, and they're eliminating stocked fish. So, you're starting to see these recommendations uh, trickle and, and start to trickle in and start to manifest themselves in management. Other states outside of Pennsylvania, you know, that was a very interesting concept to me that you know these non-native fish are, are essentially can act like a barrier. So that's one thing I wanted to share. You know, I think the key word here is life history. I want everyone to familiarize themselves with the word life history. So it's essentially how a fish forages, ages, grows, and reproduces. Managing for an entire watershed is managing for life history. Imagine if like I busted into Rob Snow White's house, you know, with an electro survey pack and I'm like, oh, we electrocuted Rob, you know. Uh, Not again. You know, yeah, on the can, in the bathroom. That's where we found him. You know, it was August, you know, it was hot. Um, you know, this is when we do our surveys, we busted in, we found Rob on the can in the bathroom. That must be where Rob lives. We're going to limit Rob to the bathroom and we're going to let these other, we're going to put these other people in his kitchen and his living room and use this space for like what we want to do over here. Since we found Rob in the bathroom, like, you know, he really only needs to live in the bathroom. That's essentially like what we're saying in Pennsylvania when we electro survey these small, you know, first order tributaries and find brook trout, you know, just, just you know, looking for cold water, trying to survive the summer, you know, we do our shockings in the heat of the summer. So we find them in these areas and we falsely assume that that's all they need when they have this life history where they spawn, they go downstream in, in a, you know, and um, some of them go downstream, they take advantage of a larger forage base, they go share their genes, you know, they increase their body size to be more fertile, make more eggs by utilizing these large waterways. So, Going through kind of myth one and just, you know, myth number one that they only need these small waterways is the, the biggest thing I wanted to spend time on today because you can imagine if we put that into like a human context, how, how silly that sounds, but it's not that far off from what we're doing with native brook trout, uh, you know, here in Pennsylvania. Like I said, West Virginia, Maryland has already started to adapt this waterway approach. So it's catching on, you know, we're just, we're just kind of waiting for, you know, um, this science to catch on and be, you know, kind of manifested in the management. But uh, I guess that's all I had on myth number one. Any, any questions, Rob? Not at all. It makes me think also that when you stock, let's say the brown trout in a mountain stream, they're probably not going to be up in the headwaters. So a brown trout that wants to, or a brook trout that wants to migrate has to get past them to go downstream and then has to get back up without getting eaten again. Yes. So, so, you know, here's the thing. Now there are, you'd be surprised how far up we find brown trout in Pennsylvania. Perfect example is like, look at Hammersley Fork. I don't know if you ever heard of Hammersley Fork. It's a tributary to the Kettle Creek up in um, North Central Pennsylvania. It's, it has a wild area, you know, old growth forest, big hemlocks, like real, like looks like, you know, should be brook trout, like, you know, one of the largest roadless areas in PA, um, excellent habitat. And there's, it's full, you know, there's brook trout in there. There's tons, there's tons of brook trout in there. But you can hike all day up into Hammersley Wild Area and catch these, you know, these brown trout all the way up there. 
Um, you know, they are going up into some of these headwater streams, but you're absolutely right that in general, brown trout are more concentrated down in the lower spring rich areas. They're kind of like the, you know, the pool bosses. They kind of take that nice, you know, habitat where there's, there's springs coming down, you get lower in elevation, there's larger food sources, you know, um, we'll get to that actually in myth number two, but yes, you're right. They have to run the gauntlet and they have to make it past. And it's not just predation. I mean, brown trout, don't get me wrong. They eat a lot of brook trout. There's actually an SRBC study on Kratzer run in Pennsylvania that shows an alarming amount of brook trout predation uh, done by a guy named Tom Clark um, in the SRBC. There's a a YouTube video floating around out there. I can, I can shoot you a link after the show if you want, but, but yeah, so there is predation, but the amount, the competition, you know, this is getting into myth number two that, you know, the big myth here is that I have heard, you know, when I heard when I was starting out and, and fly fishing and just getting my information in, in the fly shop and from anglers and stuff was I was told brown trout always replace brook trout in areas where brook trout can no longer survive. It was always replace, not displace. And uh, that is, you know, one of the biggest myths that the literature cleared up for me. Like you said, you know, they're moving, they're starting out from that tiny tributary. And in that tiny tributary, you know, they're competing for prime lies in the current where the food's concentrated with those brown trout. They are competing for thermal refuge in the summertime when things warm up in those small streams with brown trout. They are, you know, brown trout in the fall or, you know, since they spawn later than the brook trouts, they're a lot, you know, they're, they can excavate brook trout reds and dig them up and actually sabotage the, the spawning of the brook trout. And then there's uh, almost as bad as worse, brown trout can actually hybridize out brook trout in the form of a tiger trout. So you could imagine if you have a brook trout population just trying to hang on there, the couple brown trout, you know, you get, I, I forget if it's a female brook trout or a female, has to be the right sex of each species. But essentially, you know, if, if you get that to line up, you get, you know, what's called a tiger trout, which I'm sure you, you've caught and you're aware of. But those tiger trouts, that represents, you know, they don't, they're not fertile, you know, they're not going to spawn again. So you basically have just, you know, sabotaged or taken out a spawning event of that brook trout who's trying to, to spawn with that, you know, you've hybridized out that brook trout. Make competition, but not put anything back. Exactly. So eat all the food, but not add to the gene pool. And they're aggressive since they don't, you know, since they don't have to worry about, um, you know, reproduction, they can focus on feeding. They're very aggressive. It's why anglers like them actually when they're stocked. So you're right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. It's going to go into competition without, without reducing. So, and then that brook trout then decides to leave, you could have predation in the stream, or you could go down to imagine that three, four inch little brook trout going down to where the 20 inch brown trout live, right? You know, uh, (laughs) could easily become a meal or or the question is, is, is with, you know, if it does run into an area with a lot of predators, does it continue to move? You know, does it, does it continue to go on its journey? So, you know, you can start to see how it's not just predation. There's a number, it's basically competing at every level of its survival, with these non-native salmonids, you know, it could be brown trout, could be, you know, um, rainbow trout, but, but yeah. So that myth number two, that brown trout replace, not displace was, oh my God, I found a litany of literature showing that that is not the case. You know, I'm not saying that you don't have streams where brown trout replace brook trout, where they can no longer live. It does happen. But 
I think that, you know, displacement is, you know, was not even on the angling community's radar until recently. And, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon. It's, it's, you know, a real concern and, and probably happening in a, a lot of places in Pennsylvania. So the big study that kind of woke me up to this was I found a study in 2017 done by a um, gentleman named Nathaniel Hitt, who is at the uh, United States Geological Survey. And, um, yep. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, not far away from you. I used to live um, on the same street as it. I tried to get a job there for 15 years. Oh, is that the least town? No, the Reston, the head, oh, headquarters the Reston. Oh, Reston. Okay. But basically it was a study of, you know, invasion biology. And, uh, you know, the name of the study was, uh, brook trout use of thermal refugia and foraging habitat influenced by brown trout published in Canadian journal of fisheries and aquatic science in 2017. So essentially what he had was an experimental system where he had, you know, ground simulated groundwater upwellings. And, you know, he looked at how brook trout used these thermal refuges, um, like what would be a spring or a spring seep or, you know, any kind of groundwater upwelling in the wild. And he looked at how brook trout use these alone. And he looked at how brook trout use these when there were brown trout present in the study system. And what he basically, you know, saw was that brook trout wouldn't, you know, the the brown trout would impair their use of, you know, foraging behavior coming out of these thermal refuges and foraging. They wouldn't travel as far and they wouldn't, you know, forage as much. Essentially, it, it suggested that interference of brown trout um, you know, with the, the use of, you know, these thermal refuge um, areas and basically uh, spatial district, you know, how far they go from the thermal refuge to feed uh, was being impaired by the brown trout. And that the study concluded that brown trout removal um, may facilitate brook trout expansion downstream and increase population viability, depending on the spatial, spatial configuration of where these like groundwater upwellings are. So, you know, I saw that and I was like, wow, okay. So, you know, brown trout are impairing how brook trout use these springs and areas of thermal refuge, you know, given it was an experimental system. However, then I came across another article. Um, are you familiar with the Shavers Fork, Rob? It's in West Virginia. I don't it's think a, so. It's a, restore, so it's, it's a heavily restored brook trout stream that a lot of research has been done on. I, I came across another study, which was uh, Trago et al. in, um, I think, 2019. You know, they did snorkel surveys on the Shavers Fork and essentially confirmed what, you know, this, um, you know, 2017 study looked at, it, you know, in the, in the wild, so to speak. They found that brown trout in pretty much all cases would displace brook trout from what they called like thermal microhabitat, you know, areas where it was a a little cooler, a little more ideal thermal refuge. Um, you know, these brown trout were in fact, you know, displacing brook trout from this valuable microhabitat. Essentially, you know, that's a, a huge issue because with climate change, these thermal refuge, these areas of thermal refuge are going to become really important. If you look at most streams, you start in the headwaters, there's less groundwater influence. It's more of like a, what people call like a freestone stream, you know, dependent on like rainwater and runoff and things like that. But as you start to get down into the valleys and the geology changes to a karst or more porous rock formation, you start to get groundwater upwellings and springs. These uh, springs, you know, can be very cold relative to the, you know, extreme uh, summer 
you know, depending on the volume of the spring and, you know, um, you know how much water is upwelling, uh, these can be great places for fish to weather the hot temperatures. That's why this research is so significant, because with climate change and also, you know, uh, human activity in watersheds that has caused them to warm, you know, these springs are, are, are very important for native brook trout. So it's very significant that we're seeing that brown trout are affecting, you know, how this thermal refuge is used and, and feeding behavior, um, you know, and, and their ability to leave these areas intermittently and feed. So um, that was a, you know, kind of a, a, that made me stop and kind of think about how, you know, my previous, like I said, myth number two, that it's replacement, not displacement. Another thing that kind of surrounds this conversation is when you talk about doing a restoration for native brook trout, how many times have you just heard people say, we can't get it back to how it was 600 years ago? You know, that's kind of what comes up. And I would say that's absolutely right. Human influence is here to stay on the land and on the waterscape, but, you know, or on the riverscape. But like, you know, when talking to people about, you know, what are the goals if you're restoring for native brook trout? You know, there's, there's a lot of literature that is starting to point to that maybe micro habitat, looking at the whole watershed and thinking like, you know, yes, you know, influences on the larger watershed are extremely important. But what's also starting to be highlighted as important is what's the spatial relationship of these groundwater upwellings or thermal refuge to foraging area, to spawning area? You know, think about like a human being. Do you kind of have everything you need? Do you have a nice place to chill near some good food, you know, near, you know, you can kind of think about how you could make an analogy to a human being. It's kind of about, you know, do you have the things needed to complete a native brook trout's life history in close proximity? You know, if waters are warming and there are degradation in larger watershed and, you know, there could be thermal barriers, meaning the water gets too hot to go through at some point. There could be chemical barriers, meaning that you have acid mine drainage and the brook trout can't move. You know, you're, you're kind of, looking at do they have everything they need in a smaller area so it's it's not about getting it back to how it was 600 years ago necessarily you know we can't do that in a lot of cases it's more kind of looking from what i've been told at the stressors in the watershed and you know trying to mitigate those and trying to maybe help them use the watershed a little bit differently than they would have without us and trying to kind of you know, look at that space, those spatial habitat features, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Like I was saying with Shaver's Fork study, they actually found and kind of proofed that, that impairment of using that, that, uh, you know, thermal kind of microhabitat of those colder areas. They kind of saw that, you know, non-native fish were kind of, you know, pushing uh, brook trout out of those areas. But to take it a, a step further, there's another study that I wanted to reference. Uh, there's John Hawksmeyer and Doug Dieterman. There's some Minnesota DNR guys who've done some great work out there in the Driftless region. They had a study uh, called Long-Term Population Demographics of Native Brook Trout Following Reduction of an Invader in 2016. Essentially, what they did in the Michigan stream Coolidge Creek is they removed brown trout in, the, in Coolidge Creek what they found was that the brook trout actually did immigrate back downstream uh, to use the lower, you know, more food rich uh, sections of the waterway. They actually had less uh, emigration, meaning like less brook trout leaving that, that more, you know, desirable 
downstream area from a, from a forage perspective. So we started out with Nathaniel Hitt's laboratory, you know, study showing that this, you know, impairment of thermal refuge and, and uh, is, you know, big, you know, big deal. And that, you know, the study would suggest that removal of brown trout would facilitate downstream expansion of brook trout. You know, then we saw in the Shavers Creek snorkel studies that, you know, this displacement from this thermal microhabitat occurring. And then we take it to John Hoxmeyer and Doug Dieterman's 2016 study. And we see that removal, you know, actually testing this theory, um, you know, that brook trout did in fact expand uh, downstream in that case. Uh, that's a kind of a big deal if we're talking about having these brook trout, you know, survive through climate change areas. In, I, you know, I got to qualify this and say with areas where we are able to, you know, manage them where we can do those things. Uh, what I don't want people to think is that, you know, this is uh, that the, the scientific community is saying we need to be doing this everywhere because you can't. I mean, it's scientifically impossible to remove brown trout in the state of Pennsylvania. They're here to stay. We're talking about potentially looking at a few small watersheds, key areas, you know, only a handful or a couple or whatever, whatever have you, where these, you know, techniques or, or this kind of um, the, what these uh, articles are uncovering would be useful from a management perspective. So I, you know, uh, whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. To quote Bob Mallard, uh, the um, executive director of Native Fish Coalition, he said, "If you you know if you have twenty inch brown trout in a huge waterway and a great uh, a great fishery, you know it, you're, you're, it's probably too large to even think about removal in any way. And no one's you know no one's trying to to do that. To be clear, should we start um, throwing brook trout streamers?" I do color my game changers orange on the bottom and green on top. I'm going to cut out your shirt and tie it to a hook. Just, just saying it works. Awesome. <laughs> you, you, you do the, do the brook trout game changer. You'll, you'll be satisfied. What they found was essentially that brook trout will exist downstream. You know, and th- when they did this removal study, they showed brook trout, you know, will use these downstream more fertile reaches if they are unoccupied. Another really interesting study uh, on this topic that gets back to this whole thing about stocking that you and I were talking about is, you know, in Pennsylvania, like I said, we're not currently managing at a watershed or waterway level for brook trout. So we're, we're drawing these kind of tiny arbitrary lines it's the, again, we busted into Rob's bathroom with the electroshocking backpack scenario. We have these tiny sections of head, headwater streams. And because we found the brook trout there in August, that's a class A stream or a brook trout management area. So by that extension of that logic, the fish commission is saying, you know, we stock downstream of those areas because that's where we're not managing for brook trout. But as we know from Shannon White's study, the, the novel approach to riverscape genetics, we need to be managing entire waterways. So stocking downstream of brook trout, even if not directly on top of them, which is obviously a lot worse, but stocking downstream of them can be pretty bad too. And that's what this next paper 
illustrates. There's a guy named Mark Kirk, I think at Allegheny University and Dr. Kirk et al. In 2018, um, authored a paper called Evaluating the Trade-Offs Between Invasion and Isolation for Native Brook Trout and Non-Native Brown Trout in Pennsylvania Streams. They took about 78 streams in the Allegheny National Forest, I think, in that area of the state. And they basically looked at in the sample reaches, you know, did they have brook trout or did they have brown trout? And they looked at all the variables of the streams, tried to control for different variables. They really tried to isolate what is the effect of a barrier between the streams that they were investigating for the presence of brook trout or not? What's the, what's the, you know, what happens to, what happens to the question, do brook trout exist there if there's a barrier present between the nearest brown trout stocking location? What they found was, is, If there is a barrier in between the nearest downstream brown trout stocking location, the area upstream of the barrier in their study was 12 times more likely to contain native brook trout. 12 times. That's enormous. So they actually, it's funny in that study that they said brown, you know, downstream brown trout stocking location. So they're looking specifically at what is the effect of stocking brown trout downstream of native brook trout. And this is incredibly harmful. This study showed 12 times uh, more likely to have brook trout if there's a barrier present. So we just got done talking about the whole how movement and, you know, connectivity, gene flow, how that's important. You know, that's brook trout, you know, need that to maintain their genetic diversity. But stocking brown trout downstream is so harmful that even putting a barrier in place, something we know is not good for native brook trout, made it 12 times more likely that they would exist in that stream reach that was sampled. That's a powerful finding. You know, that's, I, I think that the consensus among experts uh, across the entire brook trout's native range who are in academia, in NGOs, or federal science agencies the consensus is we should not be stocking brown trout, you know, in native brook trout streams or downstream waterways in this state if we're serious about conserving this fish and, you know, not losing it in our state and the intermediate to long-term future. Obviously, we're still doing that a lot here in Pennsylvania, a ton. Not, you know, I looked at a 2009 report, says we got like roughly not almost nine million, eight to nine million fish either stocked by the Fish Commission or the co-op hatcheries, when you add in fingerlings, adult fish, you know, creamsicle trout, or what do you call it, or golden trout, or banana palominos. Yeah, pal- the, the almighty palomino, uh, and then your trophy trout program. So 9 million trout. If you want to make Pennsylvania glow orange from space, you just go on the PA Fish and Boat interactive trout map and put on the stock trout layer. I mean, statewide, the whole state just turns orange. So... That map is, from my understanding, it's really only showing you the 3.2 to 3.5 million adult trout that the Fish Commission stocks themselves. It's not showing you, you know, that other, you know, whatever it is. Like if they're stocking almost 8 to 9 million a a year based on that 2009 report in total, whatever, you know, that minus 3.2 to 3.5, that's what you're not seeing on the map. And the state still pretty much glows orange you know, in, in its entirety. So that's not even counting private 
stocking. You know, private, you know, private stocking is definitely a public problem. And there's an article by Bob Mallard that's uh, titled that that you can view on Midcurrent. But that's not even counting, you know, people who are getting fish from the U.S. Department of Ag uh, at private hatcheries. I think there's something like 600 operations, hatchery operations, and some of them have multiple facilities. Eight or nine million trout plus you know, question mark from 600 private, you know, 600 some odd roughly private hatchery operations. You know, what's the total number of stock trout in this state? Like how much is enough? When you look at this and you see like, what are these brook trout really up against? It's really just becomes amazing that they're still here. I mean, these are tough fish. People think of them, I mean, look at all that they have withstood, you know, clear cutting and early forest, you know, early, uh, you know, timbering, you know, uh, mines, and then, you know, now we have, you know, non-native, you know, species kind of, uh, you know, barrage or onslaught. That's when I, why I look at a study like Mark Kirk's and I say, wow, you know, what could we, what could we do? What could be possible for native brook trout in this state if we stop spending $12.4 million a year to stock them into oblivion? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just incredible. Other states are you know, not perfect, but like I said, West Virginia is really, uh, I mean, they have a native brook trout conservation hatchery for reintroductions. They're, they're adding more waterways, entire waterways for native brook trout conservation. These stock trout have concerns outside of native brook trout for other organisms. West Virginia just stopped stocking brown trout in certain areas for, you know, endangered guyandote crayfish, uh, endangered candy darter. You know, there's concerns, uh, you know, since Technically, brown trout and rainbow trout are listed in the International Union of Conservation of Nature as the world's top 100. They're in the top 100 world's most invasive species. Um, and Blame besides, the British. Sorry, yeah, exactly. my English friends. Acclimatization. Yeah. So you've read on Talvers and uh, you know, or, uh, the, uh, the entirely synthetic fish. Yeah, and uh, definitely read Kurlansky's salmon book if you haven't. I'll have I'll mention that oh, at the start Mark, of this podcast. Kurlansky. Did you have him on a podcast? Yeah, that guy's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was an excellent podcast. I I love the history uh, aspect of that of that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, you know, this, that's why you know other states are are doing a lot. They're you know they're they're making they're incorporating this science into their management. And you know, here in in PA, we haven't done that yet, but. That's why I thought it was so important to mention Mark Kirk's uh, study there. So in terms of, of myths, that's myth number two. You know, myth number three, one of the most kind of uh, other most prolific things that I heard in kind of the tackle shop talk or the, you know, the fishing community that the scientific community definitely, definitely felt different about was how many times have you talked about native brook trout? anyone and you know in the fishing community and you just hear the water's just not cold enough you know it's just not clean enough it's it's just it's always kind of like this out of reach you know unattainable you know goal and you know to be clear clean cold water is tremendously important for native brook trout it's it's paramount it's it's it's, it's very important i think a good way to put it in perspective for the podcast listeners is there's an excellent excellent article Again, I told you, John Hoxmeyer, Doug Dieterman, guys out of Minnesota DNR, put out a lot of great stuff. They did a review article or manuscript kind of on brown trout and brook trout habitat requirements. Um, it was in 2019. It was a manuscript and it was called Stream Habitat Needs for Brook Trout and Brown Trout in the Driftless Area. 
one of the things they go into is some of the frameworks or models of like how you look at the factors in habitat, or I shouldn't say habitat because that's a factor, but how you look at some of the components of what governs stream salmonid populations. What are the variables? And there's this one model that is really widely accepted. It's, it's actually called the five components influencing stream fish model. And the five components you have are like connectivity, which we talked about with Shannon White study. That's very important. Um, hydrology, the, what the water is doing, you know, it, in, you know, groundwater, you know, do you have groundwater coming in the actual flows in the stream, you know, watering events like the hydrograph, like, you know, that kind of stuff. And then habitat, you know, like the physical habitat, the stuff that we kind of key in, you know, key in so intently on with like a lot of the restoration projects. And then also the, the last part there, you know, water quality, or sorry, the second last water quality. And then the fifth is, you know, what we call biotic interactions, aka what's swimming around in there with them and what's it doing. They make a point in this paper to say that if you're going to complete a restoration for brook trout, and you're only going to pick like one goal, like just say water quality. If you're ignoring those other four goals or a majority of those other four goals, you're likely not going to have a high chance of success at your target, you know, restoration goal of restoring for native brook trout. Basically just kind of showing the listeners that in the scientific literature, while clean cold water is important, it doesn't seem to be an all-encompassing panacea like it is regarded in the angling community. Some examples of this would be, uh, there was a 2007 to 2011 project in Pine Creek, Wisconsin. This was a stream that already had exceptionally cold temperatures. It was 96% brook trout, 4% brown trout, all right? And the goal of the combined Wisconsin DNR and the Kayap TU Wish uh, TU chapter was the primary objective was basically to decrease sediment and increase brook trout abundance by forty to fifty percent. And essentially, they did. I think it was. Um, oh, geez, what was it? Roughly, I forget how long the stretch of the stream project was, but essentially, they did a very long stream project. And, uh, you know, they put in a bunch of these like lunker bunkers and root wads, things that you kind of see commonly in, in stream projects. And actually, there was a lot of excitement around this project. It was actually recognized by the National Fish Habitat Partnership as one of the 10 national, what's called like, quote unquote, waters to watch, like where there's a lot of excitement about the potential of a restoration, like watching what happens after it's done. Because, I mean, in, in your mind, you're thinking like, okay. We got an extremely cold watershed that has 96% native brook trout, 4% brown trout. We're going to do, you know, a, a quite significant stream project here that was, I think, 2.1 or 2.11 stream miles. Yeah, 2.11 stream miles was how long it was. So, like, you're expecting some really good stuff here, right? You know, like, you're going to improve the habitat and what's already a good stream. So unfortunately, eight years uh, post-restoration, brook trout had declined by 70% per mile. Brown trout, which originally represented 4%, had increased, uh, increased 3,150% post-restoration. Whoa, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a lot. There's a real concern there that a continuation of that trend may eliminate the brook trout. 
so what happened? You know, what, whoa, what, you know, what the heck happened? We had cold water, you know, we, we made it cleaner. We reduced the sediment. You know, we already had a great brook trout population. The authors concluded basically that lunker bunkers, root wads, and overhead cover, you know, brown trout have some of the highest use of with brook trout being intermediate. And I think rainbows being the least, but essentially it turns out that there's all this data showing based on the presence of brown trout in you know where they're found and also the interactions with brook trout that brown trout actually push brook trout out of you know ideal habitat features so if you build you know awesome you know ideal habitat features there's a concern in, in referenced in this case study that if the brown trout increased in size and increased in growth they may benefit from it more than the native brook trout do and actually be their undoing and outcompete them and push them out of this, you know, this habitat. Now, this is actually a very established concept of uh, Faust and White in 1981 clearly established, established that brown trout can push brook trout out of ideal habitat. So this is a very well-known phenomenon of brown trout displacing brook trout from ideal habitat. And then to take it a step further, we had this kind of concern based on this case study in Pine Creek. But then you go to back to Trago et al. on Pine Creek, or, uh, on Shaver's Fork, I'm sorry, in West Virginia in 2019, they were looking at, at habitat structures. They were looking at previously restored stream. And, you know, like I mentioned in their snorkel survey, they found that brown trout and rainbow trout were actually displacing native brook trout out of restored pools, especially for the, for the smaller ones. But in all cases, large or small, these brown trout were pushing them out of the ideal thermal microhabitat, those, those areas of colder water refuge. That was actually, you know, that actually came after this Pine Creek study. But then we just got some new data uh, in March of uh, 2022 here. And that was uh, Huntsman et al. were back on the Shaver's Fork again. And it basically showed that, you know, habitat restoration, they did a study where they kind of I think they use something called a joint species distribution model. And again, I'm not a fisheries scientist. I'm a layperson, So I, I don't, you know, I can't You're tell a human you. I mean, human, yes. <laughs> so I mean, human, exactly. So, but, but essentially what they demonstrated Huntsman et al in 2022 demonstrated was that um, habitat restoration is only likely uh, fully beneficial to native brook trout when non-native trout are absent from the restored reaches. And they recommended proactive approaches of restoration to address kind of this factor and that, you know, unless you can stop the non-native, um, you know, invasive trout from benefiting from these projects, you're likely not going to get that benefit, you know, uh, in any significant way with the native brook trout. You know, we have quite a few uh, studies here kind of confirming and, you know, kind of um, reinforcing the fact that, you know, when we restore a stream, and we put brook trout on the grant application and brook trout factors into the funding and we're saying we're doing it for brook trout, you know, in some cases, there's a danger we may be restoring brook trout out of house and home in the sense that it may be allowing, you know, non-native trout to take over. Now, there is good data showing that, you know, brook trout do benefit from a, a lot of this habitat creation when they're what's called allopatric, meaning they're existing by themselves. But in sympatric populations, meaning existing with brown or rainbow trout or whatever they're in sympatry with, this is where this concern exists specifically. 
And I think that we're starting to really see this concern. And the interesting thing will be how does, you know, how do grant funders, how do people who are writing the checks, cutting the checks for these grants that are, you know, going to be supposed to be advancing our, you know, restoring and protecting our native brook trout, how do they react? You know, what do they fund? You know, do in small areas where it's possible to do removal of, you know, brown trout, you know, do they want to see that as part, you know, contingent on the grant? I don't know what's going to happen with this in the future. All I can say is it seems to be very significant because as you pointed it out earlier in the podcast, you said the people who are like on the, you know, boots on the ground doing these like conservation projects, they're volunteers. You know what I mean? Like those are the people putting in the work to do this stuff. So how does it affect them and what they do? And I don't have the answer for that. But all I know is, is that, you know, it seems like that we may have to kind of change how we approach stream restoration when the objective goal is native brook trout. Again, I'm not saying these things reduce, you know, sediment, nutri- nutrients, you know, they, for the Chesapeake Bay, it's a win. You know what I mean? I'm not, not that Shaver's Fork, Fork is in the Chesapeake Bay, but I'm just saying in Pennsylvania here, there are conservation benefits to these projects. It's just that if you're saying native brook trout is the objective of said restoration project, that's where, you know, if you're trying to restore for brook trout, that these, these serious concerns arise. So this myth number three about that the, you know, the water quality is always what is impairing native brook trout is, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of holes in that. And, you know, another thing is I I heard a a statement made, and I'm not going to say where I heard the statement made, you know, it was in a, I'll say in a popular angling circle in Pennsylvania that you can't have brook trout when you have agriculture. I'm currently volunteering my time on a stream that's probably like 40 to 50% ag and has 11 inch native brook trout that still live in it. If you live in Pennsylvania, you just know this not to be true. I mean, we have, you know, big fishing creeks, which comes out of the, the Sugar Valley, which is like some of the worst things in ag you can have happening on a stream. Uh, you know, there's a slaughterhouse there where, you know, uh, where they're, they're spreading animal, you know, uh, you know, post kind of slaughterhouse animal products out on it's draining into big fishing creek and contaminating the groundwater and then it's coming <laughs> yeah it's, this is actually a big conservation issue uh, nicholas meets is if you ever go on some of the fly shop websites or the you know uh, it's a situation that uh, conservation organizations are following because they also want to withdraw a lot of groundwater which is which is bad i think they wanted to take like some hundreds of thousands of gallons off the aquifer as well off the spring mm-hmm. so there's a lot of bad stuff going on in agriculture. Um, you know, I'm not saying agriculture is bad. I'm a very well-fed human being, and I'm happy to be well-fed. I'm glad we have farms and agriculture. I'm not saying agriculture is bad. I'm saying there's a lot of negative effects on the stream from agriculture upstream, and there's still brook trout, obviously, in big fishing creek because you have groundwater. So what I'm leading into here is basically a, a study where, you know, they, they looked at, it was in the, the, the Driftless region. And, uh, you know, they essentially what they found was that if you have increasing amounts of groundwater, it allows for more agriculture to take place within the watershed and brook trout to, can, can still persist. So the name of this was, the author was, uh, I believe, Satari et al., 2010, Ecology of Freshwater Fishes. And the, the article was called, uh, or the, the study was called The Influence of Land Cover Composition and Groundwater on Thermal Habitat Availability for Brook Trout Populations. And what they found was that, you know, while forest cover 
you know, does cause, you know, positive thermal effects and protect brook trout, you know, thermal habitat. This statement of you can't have brook trout with agriculture is just not correct because, you know, what they concluded was is that higher levels of groundwater discharge can allow for increased level of agriculture within the watershed. I mean, they had some watersheds that were 40% forested and full of agriculture and held native brook trout. You know, that's not, you know, in the, in the driftless region, it's not uncommon to have active ag in a brook trout water, you know, and it's, and it's honestly, you know, not as uncommon as people think it is in central Pennsylvania, where we have karst geology and springs to, you know, have uh, active agriculture in a brook trout stream. So, you know, we, we kind of debunked that one a little bit there. And then, you know, another one, um, an, another one, um, you know, kind of thing, this whole water quality, you know, is always the issue myth. That they're super it, sensitive and have to have this pH and this yeah, exact yes. water temperature. Exactly. Not true. So it's, well, so this water quality stuff is super important. I don't want to downplay it, but I just want people to know that anyone who's telling you that any place that there is not brook trout existing, that it is because the water is not cold enough, it is not clean enough, there's too much agriculture, that is not the case. There are other variables. And while those factors are very important, as Hawksmeyer and Dieterman pointed out in their uh, review article on brook and brown trout habitat, you got that five component framework and the water quality is only one component. And they even said in the article, if you just focus on one component and ignore the rest, you're not likely to hit your restoration goal. So that's just showing us that it's not a panacea. They are, you know, the water quality is super important, but it, like anything in life, there's usually never one magic bullet. And that's also the case here. You know, the other thing about these, like you said, they're super sent. There's just like, you know, they're so sensitive that you're really starting to see that with everything that we're doing to them, I mean, they're pretty tough fish. You know, there's actually something I want to talk about. Called, I call it the acid advantage. You have a lot of, and I don't want to really say it's an advantage because it's not, uh, it's actually an impairment, but acid mine drainage or AMD, um, it leaches out of a lot of old coal mines and past coal mines here in Pennsylvania. The AMD, it makes the water quite acidic. For brook trout, you really start to get into trouble. I forget the exact pH, but, you know, when, you know, around seven is, you know, what some of the, you know, more the sevens are what some of the more alkaline, you know, spring creeks are, or sometimes, you know, I think they even can get into the eights, but I'm not a hundred percent on that. But anyway, like some of these AMD streams have pHs of like three or four, or just things that are like insanely acidic. A lot of times you can't get brook trout survival when it's really, really, really acidic, but there are some streams where you're in the, uh, you know, some kind of the high fives and sixes. Again, I don't know that I have to go back and reference what the exact cutoffs are, the hard limits. But, you know, I know just in my area, there's a stream that runs on the high fives to, to low sixes. That's mostly brook trout. That acidic water has been shown to, you know, kind of give the brook trout, you know, they, they, it's definitely not like, I don't want to say AMD is helping them. It just, it actually impairs the watershed, makes it less fertile, makes less macroinvertebrates. But brown trout cannot survive in that acidic water like brook trout can. So going back to what you're saying, we think of them as like fragile creatures, you know, these like, you know, extremely delicate creatures. And it's actually like, wow, they can actually survive in lower pHs and more acid mine drainage affected watersheds than brown trout can. And I think a good illustration of this is I was talking about how 
gentleman named Tom Clark who works for the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. And he's got this this YouTube video out there called like Brown Trout, um, or it's called like, uh, I think Brown Trout Invasion is the name of the, the um, YouTube video. Like I said, I can share it with you after the show. But essentially, there's a stream, Kratzer Run. I think it's out in either Clearfield or one of those counties out there that had a lot of coal mining. And it was, it was acidic. And they actually did an acid mine uh, drainage remediation. And there was brook trout and Kratzer Run before the acid mine drainage remediation. And they actually surveyed it and found, you know, how many pounds of brook trout or what, you know, they quantified it. And then after the remediation, the pH increased. And I think, I forget it was a nearby watershed like Bilger Run or one of the downstream runs uh, already contained brown trout. It was a little bit more alkaline than Kratzer Run was. But after the AMD was remediated and the pH increased, it actually allowed for a brown trout invasion. Uh, the brown trout were actually found in that Kratzer, you know, the, you know they, were, they were already present, I think, to like a lower extent before the uh, restoration. But what Tom found was that there was a decrease in brook trout, a large one, and, in, and that the, the brown trout that were found had increased in weight almost to the one pound mark of the amount of brook trout that had, uh, that had disappeared. So he had, there's this one part in this video. He's like, where did those brook trout go? He's like, they're in those brown trout's bellies. He said, you know, so they were, they were able to get higher up in that watershed and, uh, you know, the pH, they were able to invade and predate on those brook trout where that, that acidic pH had kind of, you know, not allowed that before the restoration. So we, as we start to do AMD remediation, which is very important. We need to be doing AMD remediation. The ecological benefits are unquestionable. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I just think that, you know, it, it seems like we may need to have a plan for our native brook trout where we are going to do that AMD remediation. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, th there's not a solid framework for, for mitigating that specific effect of AMD mediation yet, remediation yet. So, but yeah, that's, you know, on the water quality stuff, you know, that, those are a few of the points that I, that I wanted to hit. I will say in general, like we talked about, not taking it back to how it was 600 years ago from a water quality perspective, or I don't want to say water quality perspective, but a habitat perspective. You know, there's also literature on that. Um, Shannon White uh, published in Fish Biology in 2019 an article called Individual Behavior and Resource Use of Thermally Stressed Brook Trout Portend the Conservation Potential of Thermal Refugia. So basically what she found was that spatial scale, like I was talking about earlier, thermal refuge to foraging habitat is important. And then, you know, you want that in close proximity to spawning habitat if possible. Yes, the water quality is super important, but I, don't, I want that myth that we have to get it back to 600 years ago. And if we can't, we can't have brook trout like that myth needs to die. That, that's just, you know, we have ways we can help these fish persist in the watersheds you know, where they live. And that's what these people are, you know, looking into with their research. I get like, those are the three main myths that I wanted to cover. I, I had some to kind of close out here. I had some uh, what I wanted to call like reasons to be excited. All right. So those are the three myths that I, I pretty much wanted to, to hit today. You know, number one, just that brook trout only need these kind of tiny um, first order streams, you know, and kind of, it seems more like when you look at literature, We've actually kind of crammed them up there and, you know, it, they sh it, the literature shows they're actually using the whole, the whole watershed and larger streams as a corridor. And then, 
you know, the myth number two about, you know, brown trout are always replacing, you know, not displacing. We know both happens essentially. And, uh, you know, we went over the implications of um, brown trout and their negative effects on brook trout in many cases, and including, you know, limiting habitat restoration and use of thermal refuge. And then, you know, in the third myth, we talked about the water quality and, you know, how, you know, there's the perception out there that clean cold water is an absolute panacea and we could ignore other factors and, you know, basically restore our way out of all native brook trout's problems without addressing invasive species. We kind of went through, you know, how that's, uh, you know, definitely uh, does not seem to be true. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast and, you know, I love talking about this stuff and, you know, I think um, on a second podcast, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about, you know, why is the scientific community much more, you know, much less pessimistic on native brook trout than I'll say many in the angling community. And it's because there's some new, very exciting restoration tools and techniques emerging for native brook trout that give us hope in the face of climate change and human disturbances on the landscape. So, I guess I'll stop at that and save the rest for the the next episode. You know, I didn't know if there was going to be any of the any of the classic uh, fly fishing consultant oh, yes. podcast questions. You know, so, I, I I do enjoy those when I listen to your episodes. Who is your celebrity doppelganger? <laughs> oh, geez, someone you know with short hair. People, people just you know my uh, I I don't know that I'm uh, I don't know that there's anyone that I look specifically specifically like that i can put my finger on you know i i guess i'm just not handsome enough to have a celebrity doppelganger Rob. your I patients guess. don't ever say like my you look like <laughs> so and so no, they, you know and especially you know like the last two years it's just i look like the last person wearing a mask that they saw but you know no i i haven't uh, no one has you know accused me of looking like a celebrity i you know i, I must just not be that handsome Rob. all right is there ever a good time to put a rod on your shoulder Ken Tanaka has been been taunting me, sending me <laughs> private messages with rods on shoulders oh, in the middle of the stream. You know, I I don't. You know, it, it, maybe it's more of a coordination issue. I just don't do it usually. If I if I catch a fish, it's you know between you know the the arm and the ribs, or you know just in, in the stream in shallow water. But I'm gonna have to go with no in that one. But yeah, what's your brook trout rod setup? When you gonna what's your fishing? So right or wrong, I like an eight foot six slow action kind of uh, feels like fiberglass, but is not fiberglass. I, this is the rod I have. It's a Scott A4 and it's a three weight. And I, I like a, um, you know, I like a uh, weight forward floating line. that's a little bit overlined so I can push those, you know, like size 12 to 10 humpies up under the mountain laurels with, uh, you know, relatively not a lot of line out of guides, pretty much standard brook trout, you know, kind of tight mountain stream set up maybe. Yeah. So when I went to camp up there in the summers, the mountain laurels were just called schmungle land. Schmungle I, don't, land. I don't know if that was Yiddish or not, but that's what they called it. Land. We'd go on these creeks and I would see the trout, but it was just always just covered and the banks were covered in them and they're like yeah it's so thick it's shmungle land i don't know what that meant oh my goodness and uh where are you going for lunch after a day of brook trout fishing well 
I, I live in the, the Napa Valley of Scrapple country here in central Pennsylvania, Rob. It's, uh, <laughs> this is, it's my, one of my favorite uh, foods and it's made all over the place here. It's kind of unique to, to where I live. So I usually go to a diner and I'll, I'll probably get like a, you know, either just grilled Scrapple or like a omelet with Scrapple chopped up in it. A lot of nice diner spots out here. Yeah. We, we used to drive to diners. That was my dad's thing. He loves diners. Yeah, well, I grew up in Jersey, so so do yeah. I. What part of Jersey? Uh, just a suburb of Camden, Morristown, New Jersey. Okay, yeah, there was one in uh, East Brunswick we used to drive to, like out of the way. Oh, and then wow. there's Carney's Point Diner right when you cross over. That that, that was is, a favorite of his. That is out of the way. Anything new with strollers in the last eleven years since I purchased one? Uh, you know, rod carriers built in technology. No, we don't have any rod carriers. There's no, you know, there's a fly wallet would be helpful. You know, that, that would be nice. Like if this had on the back of the stroller. So let's finish with your, your Joe Humphrey style, Pennsylvania night fishing stories. Oh, (laughs) so I I go to uh, bed now. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I could go night fishing anymore. (laughs) You know, one thing that in terms of conservation and fishing, I told you, I always separate them and you know, I, I angle for a lot of invasive species, a lot of non-native species. And I, I don't blame anyone who does there. You know, we, a lot people in native fish coalition, it's not a, it's not a fishing organization at all, but you know, a lot of us do love to fish and, you know, a lot of us spend a lot of time and treasure going after brown trout or, you know, other species. And I, I happen to do a lot of uh, night fishing. I don't know if it started out as, just I wanted to go night fishing. It kind of started out as like a necessity. Like if you have kids, like you can choose to sleep or fish, but usually not fish while they're awake. I started out just going out at night and there wasn't much literature on it, you know, or much written about it. Then I found a book that was written by a, I forget his name. I think it was Ken or Jim Bashline, Night Fishing, The Final Frontier. And uh, started reading some other blogs and stuff and just wound up really starting to like it. And, you know, it's very peaceful out there at night. You don't have to worry about other anglers and having something explode on your fly at, you know, one in the morning when the water's dead still and silent before there's something exciting about that. I I just enjoy it. You know, I've been to a lot of the creeks uh, throughout central Pennsylvania doing it. And you just see weird stuff, you know, Um, yeah. One time I, I thought I hooked the state record, uh, you know, uh, trout on the fly rod. And uh, it unfortunately uh, turned out to be a muskrat. So I, 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 <laughs> oh, no. I yeah, I this, deal with that in the I, dark. I felt terrible. I felt, I felt so, so terrible. And, but it was, it was pitch dark. So this thing was thrashing around and, you know, really putting my, uh, my six weight to the test. And I thought I was fighting like a 30 inch fish. And, you know, as it, as it turns out, like once I, you know, was able to get the thing, you know, kind of reeled back in close to me and get the light on it. I, oh, my God. Uh, you know, it's a poor thing. So my buddy was just downstream of me and and uh, the thing kind of swam towards him. So he, he actually picked up the, the hook and it was is barbless. So it came right out. But like I, I was really not expecting that. And it just kind of just like, a uh, you know, a what the heck moment. Wow. It was not expecting you to say it was a muskrat. Yeah. Or I don't, it was a small mammal. I, I think it was a muskrat. I, you know, I, I'm not, it was some kind of small, or well, not so small mammal. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> right on. All right. And if you had one soup to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
Oh, geez. One soup. I'm going to say hot and sour. Right on. I haven't yes. had that in a while. Oh, it's a good choice. Yeah. For sure. All right, dude. Uh, we'll have to go fishing at some point. I'll come up there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll have to go. You know, there's no shortage of places up here in the central Pennsylvania area. So, As I've been telling producer Jason, there's a donkey rescue preserve that I want to go visit. <laughs> Just, I don't know why. I want to go see, like, donkeys are funny. Well, they are. And if, yeah. if you're in the area, we'll have to go fishing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then we'll get organized. We'll do part two. All right. Till next time, my friend. Thank you All so right. much. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thank you. All right, cheers. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. For Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.